Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone. I'm really looking forward to a conversation with Fleet Mall today. He's a senior teacher in both Zen and Tibetan meditation traditions, executive coach, social, social entrepreneur, and creator of the Radical Responsibility <clears throat> Philosophy and Program. Dr. Mall's been teaching mindfulness meditation since 1972 and teaching meditation since 1981. He leads programs and retreats around the world, and you can find him at www.fleetmall, that's F-L-E-E-T-M-A-U-L-L.com, and Fleet, welcome to Conversations. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Yeah, lovely. I uh, was really inspired by your story, and I thought it's a great way to start is your early years and uh, your early mischief and how you got into meditation. Well, you were in before, but how you got... Uh, into radical responsibility here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I came at it by first being radically irresponsible. <laughs> um, you know, I was one of those uh, folks that, I'm a baby boomer, I came of age in the 60s, grew up in the 50s, came of age in the 60s, and, and uh, kind of typical angry young man, graduated high school in 68, very tumultuous year culturally in this country, and just went headlong into the counterculture. I was barely alienated socially and politically and and uh, just went to the extremes with all of it, uh, the anti-war politics and the drug experimentation and all the rest of it. And uh, at the same time, I was always a spiritual seeker. I just always had that in my bones. I was always looking for something authentic, trying to plug into something that felt more real. And, you know, I, I had experienced something magical and real when I was a little kid and somehow it disappeared, you know, going to school or with family, problem, whatever, it just went away. And I was always trying to recapture that. That took me down some twisted byways and highways. Um, but, uh, you know, I did, uh, eventually I left the country uh, in uh, basically when, when Nixon was reelected, 1972, I said, that's it. I left the country. I was living as an expat in South America and fell in the small time drug trafficking as a way to live outside the system and justified it with all kinds of us versus them, you know, logics in my head. And, and, uh, you know, but I continued my, my, my seeking and eventually uh, my path centered around Tibetan Buddhism and trying to practice on my own for a long time and living high in the mountains of uh, the Andes in Peru and uh, very remote valley. And uh, uh, 1974, somebody brought up a copy of Rolling Stone magazine and there was this big feature story about the founding of Naropa Institute, which is now Naropa University by the Tibetan master Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. When I saw that, I just knew I had to go there. It just completely grabbed me. And so I did manage to get up there and eventually enroll and got a master's in Buddhist and Western psychology. It's now called contemplative psychotherapy. And, but continued to, you know, have this split life where I, I uh, would disappear every now and then and do a run to South America. And, and uh, I was just doing enough to continue kind of living outside the system, not dealing with my problems. My marriage was falling apart. I dealt with that with money and 
I knew all that had to end, and I knew there was a big, huge disjoint and disconnect between my, you know, growing Buddhist path and involvement and what I've been involved in. And before I managed to untangle it all, I earned my way into a 14-year federally funded sabbatical of sorts in a, in a federal prison. And uh, I, I remember you were given 30 years in college. I was, yeah, I was originally sentenced to 30 years with no parole. I was 35, and I thought I'd be 65 before I could get out. And uh, that's what it said in the paper the next day. And, you know, that was obviously got my attention. It was incredibly shocking. And, and I don't mean to make light of it in any way. It's... Uh, you know, my son was nine years old at the time, and I was absolutely devastated over what I'd done to him and left him and his mom with nothing. And his mom and I had been separated for a long time, but I was continuing to support them. And and uh, so I, it just really woke me up. I had to face all the really selfish decisions I've been making for so long. And uh, all the justifications just started to crumble. And actually, after being in prison for a couple of years and being in, you know, 12-step groups, dealing with my own substance abuse and alcohol issues, being in those weekly groups and listening to one man after another who was a male prison talk about how their life completely unraveled around drugs and the life of their family and their kids unraveled around drugs. I really, any artifices I had that was of self-justification or about being involved with drugs or any of it just completely crumbled. And I really had to face it. I've been causing a lot of harm. So I became radically dedicated to, to turning my life around and doing something with that time uh, that would leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or even his dad died in prison. I had no surety that I would survive my time. It was actually, I don't know, probably, you know, I was probably in prison six, nine months by the time I figured out how the good time worked. And actually under uh, the prior to 1987, there was a lot of good time. And I was sentenced before that. Um, you got, uh, on a sentence as long as mine, you got 10 days a month statutory good time right off the back end of your sentence, which they could take away from you if you got in trouble. But you knew you had that statutory release date if you stayed out of trouble. And then if you kept the job, you didn't have to do anything good. But if you just kept the job, you got another five days a month that you earned as you go. So at that point, I figured out I would serve 18 and a half if I stayed out of trouble, which still seemed like forever, obviously. And, uh, and then about three years into my time, my appeal had worked its way through the uh, system, the courts, and they, they knocked off one count, uh, which should have actually thrown out my whole sentence. They should have given me a new trial, not necessarily gotten, gotten me off, but should have given me a new trial. But they just took the one cent count off, and so that reduced my sentence to 25 years. And then uh, I knew I'd serve 14 and a half, which is what I did, 14 on the inside and half in a halfway house and on house arrest. So... At any rate, I, I, I realized very early on that my only way through and out of that situation was just to embrace radical ownership for having gotten myself into that situation. And I was surrounded very quickly. I saw once I got to the prison, uh, you know, I went through this hellish experience of county jail for seven months during trial and sentencing. Once I got to the federal prison, it was kind of a relief, but this was also a hell realm. It was the um, U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. and uh, they had about uh, 1,000 patients, 600 medical, 400 psychiatric, and about 300 inmates that were just there to help run the place, like myself, to work in food service, housekeeping. I ended up getting a job in a school because I had an education. But I, was, I got there, and I could see men you know, being assisted around who are blind. He meant being in prison, being blind. Men who are paraplegic, uh, quadriplegic, wheeled around in wheelchairs. Uh, and emaciated with AIDS and cancer, you know, it was really, and then 
uh, guys coming out of the psychiatric wing doing this Thorazine two-step because they're over-medicated. And so it, it was a pretty hellish place in that way. But fortunately, it was a big place. There were things to do. I was able to get a good job that gave some meaning to my life. And I just became, you know, and, and the other part was as I began to meet prison, I realized that the mindset in there was that everybody had a victim narrative. Mm-hmm. everybody you just ask the right question it outpours you know my fall partner screwed me over my lawyer screwed me over the, the court screwed me over you know everybody and everybody armed themselves with bitter and angerness because you're, you're under an avalanche of demonization from the system from your arrest forward and so naturally human beings we just we we protect ourselves by armoring up with anger and bitterness and our victim narrative and so forth and uh I saw, I felt bad for people, but I didn't want to end up that way. I didn't want to come out of prison angry and bitter, and I didn't want to live that way in prison. And fortunately, I'd had enough training to know that, and I realized that I had to radically dedicate myself to transforming myself, and that the way was just to take 100% ownership having got me in there. Even though I could, you know, there were, you know, the guy in my trial, the government broke all the rules. All kinds of people much bigger than I did got off by, you know, designated me as a kingpin and lots of former associates stabbing. I could have focused on all that stuff. I just put it all over there. Mm-hmm. And I said, I got myself in here. I got to get myself out of here. That's all I'm going to focus on. And that's really the radical responsibility model kind of evolved from there. Mm. So one of the things that struck me, Fleet, was when you went into prison, you made this commitment to eradicate all negativity from your life and that you were going to do something valuable when you're in there. That's, that's a big commitment to walk into prison and say, you know, because it's such a field of negativity there. How, how did you manage that and uh, how did it impact the other prisoners around you? Yeah, well... Uh... You know, actually, it kind of began uh, the night before my sentencing. I was in a, a cell in a different county jail, closer to the courts where I was uh, to be sentenced. And I couldn't sleep that night. I was facing anywhere from 10 to life with no parole the next day. And uh, I knew it was going to be significant. I was, uh, but anyway, and I wasn't suicidal, but they had me in a video suicide watch cell, I guess, just in case. I wasn't suicidal at all, but I was extremely anxious. I couldn't sleep. And I remember just shortly before dawn, I, I stood up on the, the, uh, uh, the you know, the, the, the sink and the toilet. It's all built into this concrete cell. And I stood up there to peer out a window that was the only windows high up there just to look out at the night sky. And, and uh, somehow right around there, around dawn, I just made this commitment that I was never going to give up, that I, somehow I was going to get through this. And I just chose life, you know, because I was in a pretty desperate state. And I said, no matter what happens tomorrow, I'm not going to give up. And then when I did get sentenced, you know, it really hit me what I'd done to my son. And, and I was really committed to wanting to just leave a better legacy for him. And so when I got there, um, I just started seeing how I could show up. One of the advantages of the place that I went to being the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisons, which is the maximum security medical facility in the federal system. And this was the AIDS epidemic was just really going into full swing. This was 1985. And they're bringing all the AIDS patients there. And there were people there in all kinds of terrible situations with mental illness and Ill, uh, various illnesses. And, and uh so you can imagine I, wrote, I, I arrived there really caught up in the drama of my own situation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that place just shocked me out of that because there was so much suffering. 
And it was so clear that so many people had it, had it so much worse off than I. And, you know, it just really woke, again, woke me up. And, you know, I'd had a lot of training with my Tibetan Buddhist teacher, who was somebody that just, as best I could tell, lived in service of humanity 24-7. And uh, so, and, you know, my family background. And anyway, I was just inspired to start showing up and see how I could serve in that place. And my day job was teaching school. I helped men learn to read, to get their GED, to take college courses. And, and I did. I taught both in English and Spanish. I'm bilingual. And so that was my day job for 14 years. Um, I managed to get a meditation group going in the prison chapel. They didn't want to, but I managed to get it, get it happening. And uh, had one evening and then eventually an evening and a Saturday. So did that for 14 years. Just went down, put out the cushions. Well, initially chairs. Eventually we got cushions. And whoever showed up, showed up. I got involved in 12-step work right away and, and uh, uh, became really an anchor for that group for 14 years, although I kept retraining other people and putting them into the service positions. People were, most people weren't there for more than 18 months or so, and I was there for 14 years, so it would continually fall back to me. And that was a really important part of my life, the 12-step recovery. We had fabulous, wonderful volunteers that came in from the outside that, you know, that at least that one hour a week, you were with people that treated you like a human being, right? There was no context of and uh, of like when you're in prison where you're just kind of treated as some kind of less than human. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, a lot of those positive influences and, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I walked this, this kind of place between, uh, I was very clear, I was a prisoner, I was part of the prisoner culture. That was my, you know, that became my family really, but initially that was my, what I was part of. And I kept my distance from the guards. And, you know, you, you really got to be clear. There's very big boundaries there. And you have to be very clear about that. But I wasn't, you know, if you really wanted to fit in as a prisoner, you'd walk around MF this and MF that all day long and complaining about the guards just being bitter and angry. And you go, oh, you're like us and you fit in. But I didn't do that. So people were a little wary, you know, of me. And, and I also wasn't just, you know, acting like playing a convict game so that the guards are like well who is he what's his trip you know so you know it was a little bit of that but because I lived this life of service so many of the guys uh, I helped them get their GDs or helped them learn to read Uh, I knew a lot of people through the 12-step program people came to the meditation group and then a couple of years into uh, my sentence we started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere and another inmate and I got that started with the help of a prison psychologist and a prison chaplain. And, uh, you know, men were dying in horrendous conditions there of AIDS and other illnesses, just really criminally negligent conditions. And um, we managed to get this hospice program started. We kept, you know, we kept advocating, advocating for it. And finally, there was an associate warden who was against it, who left. And his replacement, then not long after coming there, had a, a family experience in his own family with hospice and was just kind of converted by the power of that and said, well, let's give this a try. So we brought in outside professionals to train a group of inmate hospice volunteers, and, and uh, that was in the fall of 1987. And then we started seeing patients in January of 88. And that was a big part of my life for the rest of my time there. I spent most of my meal breaks, a lot of my evenings and weekend time up in the hospital caring for men who were dying of AIDS and cancer and other illnesses. And I was usually assigned, we, we were assigned to a particular uh, uh, inmate, a patient, uh, and you stayed with them throughout their, you know, the time of their illness. And 
And uh, I usually almost always had two patients at once. In fact, I think I always did. Sometimes I had three, which was kind of too much. But we tried to keep up a group of 10 trained inmate volunteers. And it was hard because people were coming and going from that prison a lot. And I was really directing that training program. And uh, I was delivering some of the training myself and recruiting people. And I eventually did research on that program with the help of the prison psychologist, got some stuff published, started a national organization out of that. But during my time there, that was a big part of my life. And the confrontation with one's own mortality and being involved in that kind of service work where you're really putting someone else's needs ahead of your own. And, you know, here you are in prison, you're suffering, you got your whole big drama, but you're up there focusing on this, this is their time. I'm sitting at their bedside. You know, I need to focus on them. And, and that kind of service work is incredibly transformative. So all those things, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, with the other prisoners, a lot of the prisoners, as I said, kind of probably saw me with suspicion. But over time, I found that in prison, if you're, if you're serious about anything you do, if you're disciplined about it and serious about it, sooner or later, people will respect you. Yeah. And, you know, people saw, you know, I lived in big dorms the first two years. I finally got a single cell. Even in the big dorms, I'd sit up on the upper bunk. People would see me up there practicing meditation. Or after a while, I started cleaning out the trash closets and sitting in there for hours at a time. People would look through the windows, see me there, and think I was crazy. But they saw I was serious about it. Mm-hmm. So generally, they respect that. And, you know, I led a very disciplined life. I was either working, working out, up in the hospital uh, with the hospice patients. It's a meditation group, the AA group, where I was on my bunk studying or practicing meditation. And people, you know, they recognize that. They're, most people respect that, even if they don't understand it. So... Um, you know, so that was, I led this very disciplined kind of monastic, but service oriented life for, um, for those 14 years yeah, and really, sounds, really worked on myself. Yeah. It sounds like being in a monastery, you know, <laughs> when you describe it and the whole idea of being with death so much and mm-hmm. being in that space and being able to bring a, a sense of presence to the dying had to be a huge part of your education and evolution. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I was probably, I think I had about something like about 25 hospice patients over the 11 years that I was there doing that work. And uh, I was with probably half of them when they died. Early on, a lot of times patients die in the middle of the night. We weren't able to be there. Later on, we got them to bend the rules. And if if the nursing staff thought the person might die during the night, they'd let us stay there and count us up there because they count you in prison like six, eight times a day. And you got to be where you're supposed to be so they can get the count right. Right. So eventually we're able to do that. But I, I was, you know, I was with a lot of men at the moment of death, a moment of death. And I also, I think one of the most powerful things we did for the men there was somebody was bearing witness to their life. They weren't just dying alone in prison forgotten. There was somebody hearing their stories, witnessing them. Yeah. And that was very powerful because I had to, I had to grow bigger to include, I mean, all, I carry all those men with me today. They're all in my heart. I, they feel very close to me. And, you know, so you have to grow bigger to carry that. Yeah, and they must have confided a lot to you also. I want to talk about your book, Radical Responsibility, just out, Mm -hmm. How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Talk about the evolution of this book and, um, and what is Radical Responsibility and the Radical Responsibility Program. Just a little overview. We'll get into it. Yeah. What I mean by radical responsibility is voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life, day in and day out, internally and externally. So, 
you know, if we get honest, we, we can see that we, we have a role to play in creating a lot of the circumstances we face in one way or another. Uh, and so part of it is looking at that, not for the purpose of self-blame, but just for the insight to see if I recognize how something played out or my contribution to it or how I could have avoided it, then the next time around, I don't have to do the same thing. I can get different results, right? So it's not, never for the purpose of self-blame. The radical responsibility model is stepping out of the blame and shame paradigm altogether. That's a key distinction. And really one of the key distinctions that runs through the book is the distinction between blame and ownership. So it's not about blaming oneself ever. And then there may be circumstances that we run into that happen to us that just, no matter how honest we get, we can't see we had anything to do with it. And everybody would agree, we had nothing. It just fell out of the sky and landed on our head, right? So we even embrace that. Why? Again, not to blame ourselves and not as a burden, not as any kind of punishment, but because by embracing it, it's the only place we have any power. Right? I can't control the world around me, but I have some influence here and that's challenging enough. So I choose to put my energy where it can do the most good with my choices. And my Because, you know, when, when something really terrible happens to someone, I mean, they we're going to feel victimized and we may need a lot of support. We may need that validated. We, you know, and it's not, this is not about telling somebody else you need to get off your victim trip. Right? That's not at all. This is about us, not about others. But even when someone, something really terrible happens to someone, if they stay stuck in that, and never find some way to move forward in their life, it's going to be very self-limiting for their life at the very least. So at some point, can we ask the question, you know, maybe we're in a situation that's just terrible, it's criminal, it's, it's, it's horrible, it should never happen to anybody. Well, at some point, embracing the fact, okay, I don't know why, but it's in my life. I don't have a choice about that now. What am I going to do with it? Am I going to let it take me down? Or am I going to find some way to move forward in my life? Because I can't go backwards. It's in my life. So what am I going to do? So this idea of, of radical responsibility has nothing to do with blame. It's, it's not about blaming ourselves, not about blaming others, not about blaming victims. It's about putting our energy where it can do the most good with the choices we're making now, which is really what determines our future. And, you know, this is not a, an entirely new idea. I think it was Marcus Aurelius, I'm paraphrasing one of his, he was one of the Stoics and the, considered the last good Roman emperor. And uh, he said something like, you know, most people feel that their, uh, their destiny is determined by their circumstances, but in fact, our destiny is determined by our response to those circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so that's kind of the model, and, and it, I've been leading trainings grounded in that model ever since I got out of prison, and I, I started calling it radical responsibility about 10, 12 years ago. It has some elements that I first contacted in another training called the event, which uh, while I was in prison, uh, a gentleman named Purna Steinitz contacted me, and uh, he had read some of the things I was publishing. I was getting some art articles published about my life in prison and being a Buddhist practitioner in prison and uh, in various journals, and he'd run into some of that, and he wanted to use it in the follow-up curriculum for this program he led called The Event. And uh, so I found out a little bit more about them, what they're doing, and I said, fine, that'd be great, and I got on their mailing list, and I started reading a lot of people reading in, in this journal talking about their experiences with the event and the kind of, I got really interested in it. It looked like really great work. And so it turned out they were going to do an event in Springfield, Missouri, where the prison was. And I convinced two of the psychologists to go out and do it. And they did it and loved it. And they brought it in. It's a miracle that they got it in because it involves, it's very intense group work, it involves rage holds, stick work. I mean, it's very intense. And if the prison authorities had known what it was, they never would have let it in. 
But in the same room where we did the uh, AANA group, which was this one isolated room up on the third floor of the same building that had the, the recreational facilities, the chow hall, and then there's this one single room up on the third floor. It was very isolated. So we were able to do it there. And there were parts of the training where the psychologists were keeping an eye on the hall to make sure a guard didn't come up, you know, because it was just, it was really out there. But we did that and we did four of them during the last three years I was there. And that program created such transformation that the warden hired Perna Stein as my friend as his executive coach. And, you know, that really, uh, that also, I'll backtrack a little bit because that led in many ways to the radical responsibility model as well. So when I started teaching meditation in prison, uh, the first thing I noticed was guys came sometimes, it was night day, they'd rather go out to the yard and things like that. And I started having thoughts like, well, my fellow prisoners are kind of a flaky bunch. I don't know how well this is going to go, right? And of course, I ended up training to realize those were judgmental thoughts and not helpful at all. I started thinking, well, maybe it's the way I'm delivering it, or could I offer it this way or that way? So I kept experimenting around. Eventually, I brought someone in who taught uh, mindfulness meditation as a way to work the 11th step in the 12-step recovery program. And I was able to invite a bunch of guys from the 12-step group. And some of the guys stuck and kept doing it. So then I had a cohort of guys, including myself, to do my participatory research with who were doing both mindfulness or meditation work and the 12-step work. And I started to see more traction, more change. Then when I started the hospice program with, with the other inmate, um, we, I, of course, recruited guys for that who were involved, not exclusively, but many of my recruit were involved in the 12-step work and the meditation group. So then I had a group of guys to follow, who, including myself, who were doing the 12-step work, the meditation and Dharma-based work, and in this incredible service work being with men who were dying. And I started to see really profound change. So then when we started the first event, I of course recruited a lot of those guys into the event. And after we did the second event, we started a men's group with guys who were doing mindfulness. They were in the hospice program. They're in 12-step work. They'd done two events. And we started a, a transformational men's group. And these guys were not only transformed, they were becoming transformers. Many of them went on to other institutions and started all kinds of programs. And it was, there was creating such change in the institution that the, that's when the warden hired my friend as the executive coach. And after I left, uh, he brought him in to train all of their uh, executive staff and all the nurses, the doctors, all the staff, not using that intense process of the event, but using some of the similar context. Mm -hmm. So there's elements in the radical responsibility model, like Stephen Cartman's drama triangle, which I first learned about in the event. And this distinction that I now I call the distinction between the uh, the drama zone and the empowerment zone. Those distinctions originally came from the event. But I've added a lot to it and integrated it into a whole mindfulness-based emotional intelligence approach and really turned it into a whole path, which the book represents. The book is really meant to be a manual. It's not just a book to read, but I encourage people throughout the book to have a, a journal, a workbook, and there's all kinds of exercises and, and guided meditations. And the idea is really to help somebody really develop a path for personal evolution. And ultimately, the book is really about both personal responsibility or the integration of personal responsibility and collective responsibility. And it's also about societal transformation. But the first book focuses mostly on the personal responsibility part. I'm going to do a second book that focuses more on social change from the same perspective. Yeah. So let's start to take some of these things apart. So in the last 20, 30 years, there's been this explosion of the personal help uh, growth uh, industry and 
it's 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 grounded in the place that something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with the system. So. Mm-hmm. We're always trying to get somewhere, but it's from a place of something's broken or something's wrong. How does your work interrupt that? I know you talk about uh, this whole thing about your whole and perfect, and talk about that shift. Yeah, well, the very first chapter is, is there's nothing wrong with you. And of course, this comes out of my deep Buddhist training and the idea of Buddha nature, which could equally be Christ nature or Christian nature or divine nature. And what my Tibetan teacher, Chung Prince, simply called basic goodness, that, that all human beings, all of life is innately good, which is not the, the relative good versus bad, but it's a deep sense of wholeness and integrity. And it really, things are pure and unstained at the deepest level. And then on top of that, you have all the human condition and all the stuff that we go through, right? But underneath that, it's not like life is not fundamentally flawed in some way. I mean, the idea that human beings are somehow fundamentally flawed is just not even logical, right? And, uh, and it's a very bad idea because it's led to a culture of blame and shame and, and the kind of punishment reward culture we have in a criminal system. I mean, a criminal justice system that's based on a retributive justice and it's based on the idea that human beings are dangerous and absent the threat of some coercive force, they won't behave well, right? It's a kind of Calvinistic, uh, form of, uh, Christianity. And so, um, so this really starts with the idea that, that not only is it a, a belief system or philosophy that we have innate goodness, but it's experiential. We can actually drop into the depth of our being using contemplative methods like meditation and get to a level of our being, blow all the stuff on the surface where it's unmistakable that there's not a problem. And we also contact something where, you know, we, we, we realize we've known that our whole life. And despite all the messages of unworthiness and, and not enoughness, that some part of our being has always known that that was a lie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're conditioned. I mean, the human condition, you come out in a very fragile state. And, you know, once you have to start separating and individuating from the mother or the surrogate parent, you can't go back. You got to go forward. So you start putting together a self-structure to cope with life. And you, depending on how stable your upbringing is, or how much love or lack thereof or whatever, you put together the best thing you can. And for some people, it's a fairly stable, successful self-structure. For others, struggle a lot depending on the environment they developed it in. But even the most highly functioning person, you know, there's still that waiting for the other shoe to drop. There's like what Thoreau talked about us being, you know, the great masses of, of people are living lives of quiet desperation, that abiding fear. Because whatever self-structure we build, we build it uh, out of fear because the, the alternative is black hole of emptiness when we're six months old, a year old, two years old. And we, we don't know how to hold that kind of groundlessness and even when we're adults and through spiritual means, we start sort of exploring that groundlessness, which is really the nature of things. That's very challenging to do even as adults with spiritual means, right? So at any rate, you know, that's just a human condition. That's all there. But, but that, you know, underneath all that is, you know, the purity of our being. And all the great spiritual traditions have pointed to that. You know, the, the cross-cultural consensus of the millennia is innate goodness. The, it, the, the view of the flawed nature of humanity is a, is a minority view historically, for sure. And so uh, I, in the first chapter, we talk about how not only we might want to entertain that notion rather than having a negative view about ourselves, but we can actually experience it. We'd actually slow down and use mindfulness meditation practices to experience that part of our being where that becomes an unmistakable reality for us. And that changes everything, changes everything. 
one of the things I love about your book is, for instance, around the unconditional goodness, you have practices in their journal work. It's, uh, mm -hmm. It really is a workbook. And uh, you bring people into the mindfulness, uh, the meditation aspect. One of the things I'd like you to talk about is the two different modes of mindfulness, the witnessing mm -hmm. and the direct sensing and how they help us to uh, develop that mindful awareness, uh, that, that presence. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think that is really important. And it's a, it, it's a subtlety that people generally get, you know, after they establish a praxis, they can start opening up to, you know, sort of the subtler levels of their practice. So, but actually when I teach meditation, I teach, I teach this right off the bat. So to begin with, we start with witnessing or observing. And the analogy I use for that is before we start, before we awaken in some way and start developing some awareness and practicing mindfulness and awareness in some way or another, uh, we're just kind of lost in our experience. We're just in the flow of the sensate experience, sense perception, thoughts, emotions. So we're just kind of in it. And uh, it's like, does a fish really experience water? You know, they're just in it, right? So, but at some point we wake up and through some mindfulness and awareness practices, we can step back a little bit from our experience and observe it and see all the content of all the thoughts and emotions and sense perceptions, but actually witness it. So who is that that's witnessing all that, right? There's some kind of witness capacity there. And from that place, that's the beginning of our psychological and spiritual freedom, because from that place of the witness, we can choose how to respond to life rather than just being caught up mechanically and lost in it and being living a very reactive mechanical life without consciousness, right? So that's the first step is the witnessing. So that's kind of like, if you imagine, you know, we're in this river of sensate experience, but kind of unconsciously, we step out of the river. So we can sit on the bank of the river and just observe. We see the river flowing by, the currents, the eddies, branches, leaves flowing by. We see all the content, right? But we can witness it and choose how to respond to it. Then at some point, when we've established the witness, the capacity to observe or notice with stability, we can then allow ourselves to sort of slip off the bank and back into the water and directly feel the water, feel the wetness of the water, experience the currents and all the rest of it, and directly feel it without so much of a need for the separate witness or even a feeler or a sensor. We're just in the experience. So the subject-object duality is collapsing a bit, and it's a more non-dual experience, so really just being in our experience. But now the difference is we're in it, but with consciousness, with wakefulness, right? So like with the breath, mindfulness of breathing meditation, we can observe the breath, and we can observe the sensations that the nostrils are part of the lips or the belly rising and falling, the chest rising and falling. Or we can actually feel all those sensations. We can just feel them. And then we can let go of the need for a feeler somewhat and really just be the breath. Just be the breath, right? And so that, and we'll go back and forth. They're both important. They actually use different parts of the brain. The witness uses the medial pathways of the brain, which are more connected to our self-sense. And again, this is an important part of the practice. And then the direct sensing, direct feeling is more connected with lateral networks in the brain, which have more to do with a feeling of embodiment. Embodiment. And one of the things that I explore, especially with the direct sensing and feeling, is not only all the physical sensations we can feel on the surface of the skin, but dropping into the body, using our capacity for what's called interoception or introceptive awareness, which is the body's capacity to feel itself from the inside out, so to speak. And we all have that. It's how we know when we're tired or thirsty or hungry or 
we need to use the restroom or if we're having a headache or some muscle pain, that's the body communicating to us. That's sensation inside the body. And everything in the body is sensory. All the connective tissue, circulatory system, the organs, we're, it's sensory all the way down to the bones and all connected to our nervous system, right? So we're usually only aware of, our, of that interoceptive capacity when we experience pain or discomfort of some kind. But we can cultivate an abiding awareness of that, and that translates into, you know, there's actually a, a, an aliveness that's there all the time. And we can tap into that and develop an ongoing abiding access to that, and that translates into feeling really embodied and present. And others will experience us as more present and available. And also for our mindfulness practice, it anchors us more deeply in the body, makes it more difficult for the mind to wander, easier for it to come back. It also does all kinds of other things that we tap into this internal resonance within the body that, that is, that's healing and, and deepens and deepens our resilience. And then the really interesting thing that we're discovering now through new fields like interpersonal neurobiology is that the neural pathways involved in interoceptive awareness and, and a, a deep felt sense of embodiment and presence are connected to the neural pathways involved in connecting with others the inner subjective space of connection and intimacy. So the more deeply embodied we become, the more we start picking up on the energy of others and, and tuning into others, and we more easily, easily create connection and intimacy. Because we're not the skin-encapsulated beings that, that ordinary science always said we were. We live, we live in this inner subjective field, both energetically and psychologically. If you just tuned in, I'm talking to Fleet Mall about his new book, Radical Responsibility. You talk about embodiment and you talk about feeling your feelings, but so many people are severely dissociated, have suppressed uh, from early trauma or early abuse. So there's, there's all of these things that have happened to people. What are some of the practices that you recommend for people to be able to reconnect with their physical body in the meditation mindfulness work and to be able to actually speak what they're feeling. Many people have one or two feelings, anger and sad, and that's it. There's nothing left on the menu. Yeah, in some of my trainings, I joke, uh, if, it's, if there's men in the room, I'll joke, you know, the guys, we have two feelings, right? Pissed off and beer. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it is about taking this embodied approach, you know, dropping from the head down because we're so visually and auditorially oriented. It's natural that we're up in our heads and we're listening to that 24-7 radio station between our ears all the time, right? So we're very caught up in our heads. So it's consciously dropping down into the body, you know, through the shoulders, torso, that all the way down through our feet, down to our legs, down to the earth and really cultivating that quality of embodiment, but doing it in a way that works for us because... We all have what's called a window of tolerance. When we get outside of that window of tolerance, we either get really upregulated and get too anxious, or we start to downregulate to the point of checking out and disassociating, right? And, and so, and some of us have a very narrow window of tolerance, some of us have a more expansive window of tolerance. So a lot of the work of mindfulness and mindfulness awareness meditation is about expanding our window of tolerance, but we have to titrate that in a way that works for us through the Engage Mindfulness Institute. So we're training teachers, mindfulness teachers, to bring mindfulness to where vulnerable populations, uh, uh, individuals that have been placed at risk by their circumstances, underserved communities, marginalized communities, the criminal justice spectrum, urban schools, mental health, 
you know, places of homelessness, places where there's a lot of suffering and a lot of trauma. And so we're, we're teaching people uh, to do trauma-informed mindfulness, whether they're sharing the practice or they're facilitating a mindfulness-based intervention. And so part of that is training the student how to titrate their own experience, how to guide their own mindfulness practice in a way that works for them so they can stay within that window of tolerance and then gradually over time experiment with leaning in this way, leaning that way, and gradually expand their own window of tolerance. So I think more and more people are taking a trauma-informed approach to sharing the practice of mindfulness today because there's so much trauma in our, in our world altogether. I mean, I, I was just training correctional officers today, and, and I do that a lot. And, of course, there's a tremendous amount of trauma among people who work in corrections and work in law enforcement. So I, I think it's very important today to take a more trauma-informed approach to teaching mindfulness, which means we're empowering people to guide their own practice in a way that works for them and is, is workable so they don't get too dysregulated or too disassociated, but that over time they can gradually develop more and more resilience so they can handle more and more challenging situations. It's not just individual trauma either, it's cultural trauma. You use a number of different people's work and I love the way you integrate for instance, Daniel Goldman's four quadrant play. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the different quadrants and how you use them in your radical responsibility methodology. Yes, I, I often refer to this radical responsibility model as mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. So Goldman's four quadrants are a very helpful map. It's, it, you know, like all these things, it's, it's a map. It's not reality, but it's a very helpful map. And so there's the quadrant of self-awareness and self-management, social awareness and relationship management. And it's pretty obvious how this dovetails with mindfulness awareness practices, because it's really all about awareness. So in the spirit of self-awareness, through contemplative disciplines, we can become a lot more self-aware and develop a lot more self-understanding. And we can be, oh, be, know what our emotional triggers are and, and how, that, how we get triggered. We can under, we get, become aware of a lot of the negative core beliefs that are driving our attitudes, feelings, and behaviors, feelings of not being enough or feelings that the, there's not enough love and whatever in the world to go around and that, that kind of inner poverty and landscape of a lack of self-agency and all authority, all good things are out there and an impoverished inner world, which of course then leads to behaviors that tend to be self-destructive, addictive, compulsive, and so forth. So through awareness practices, we can become aware of what's going on in our internally and not and have and as we develop stabilization of awareness and witness, we can not let that run our life. And over time we can transform a lot of it and have a landscape that where we feel much more self-empowerment, more self-agency, and we start connecting with innate goodness and having more confidence in innate goodness. Right? And the more self-awareness, self-understanding, self-evidency we develop, that naturally leads into a capacity for self-regulation. And we can also learn tools for self-regulation, like what I teach in the book, like straw breathing and other uh, to navigate our own physiology, right? We have the sympathetic branch, which upregulates us, and the parasympathetic branch downregulates us. And I teach people the accelerator and the brake, so you can upregulate when you need to and downregulate when you need to using simple breath regulation techniques. Mindfulness itself is a, is a self-regulation technique. Uh, things like, if you're really angry, count to 10, right? We've all heard that. By the time you count to 10, you slow down a little bit because the reptilian brain can't count, right? You know, there's all these different ways that we can change our state, you know? Get up, put, throw some music on and get up and start dancing. It's pretty hard to, you know, be miserable when you're dancing, right? So there's all kinds of ways that we can change our state. Actually, 
Bessel Van Eckholt in his uh, book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, and in some conversations I've had with him, talks about a lot of the things that we know are good for healing trauma, like vocalization, singing, swaying, dancing, fellowship in groups, and the ghost kind of thing. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? People have been doing that in churches forever. You know, somehow intuitively we've known what we need to do to heal ourselves, right? And now we're, we're knowing more about that scientifically, right? Goes all the way back to shamanic community healing. Absolutely. The very roots of it. And then and you have the other two quadrants of social awareness and, and, and relationship management. So basically with awareness, we're getting more data and more accurate data about ourselves and with social awareness, data about others in the world around us. And it's an empathic awareness. We're, we're not getting information to use in a manipulative way, but we're getting it in a relational way with, with empathic awareness. And so that allows us to be more skillful with others. We're, we're tuning into what they're feeling and needing, and, and we're just able to, to be more skillful, right? And we can also train ourselves in all kinds of uh, communication skills, mediation skills, conflict resolution skills, all kinds of ways to be more skillful in that fourth quadrant of relationship management or effective relationships, right? So this, and they all reinforce each other, right? All the four quadrants that kind of reinforce it, they're all interrelated and mindfulness enhances all of them. So the mindfulness-based emotional intelligence model is quite powerful. And, and this has been written about by a number of researchers going back probably 10 years, 15 years. We started using that term about then with our Path of Freedom program, which is our a similar program we have for prisoners, which is now in 21 states and seven countries. It's a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum for rehabilitation and transformation for prisoners. I think this is really important. I just want to underscore that it's the awareness is leading towards empathy and understanding in a way that helps break through the divisiveness and the separation, which I think is at the heart of all of our suffering, is that over-individuated self that thinks we're separate and in a world of separate objects. Yeah, the context is everything, right? So, I mean, we could use mind training skills and become skillful in ways in a very manipulative way with bad intentions. But the context by, first of all, being aware of our own suffering and being aware that others are suffering and our natural heart response to that, which is a natural human response, and then training ourselves to be able to open further with that. Empathy is really just the capacity to feel what we're feeling, to feel what others are feeling. And that can be very stressful. So when the more empathic we are, it, it leads to a choice point because we, we start experiencing what's called empathic distress. And if we don't have a way to work with that, it leads into more distress and, and either dysregulation or disassociation, right? But if we have a way to work with it and we can engage with it with self-compassion, compassion for others, engage in altruistic behavior, have ways to hold it, develop the resilience to work with it, the mindfulness awareness practice, and we have the benevolent intention, which is natural to our being, then empathic distress becomes a springboard to further compassion. Mm -hmm. But it can really go either way. That's why sometimes people talk about compassion fatigue. That's really a misnomer because compassion in of itself is transformative. We get tremendous neurobiological rewards for compassion and altruistic behavior. It's really empathy fatigue. Empathy, where we're just taking on, taking on, taking on, but don't really have a way to work with it, eventually it becomes too much and our body just starts shutting down. One of the other models that I would love to talk about, because it's 
so prevalent is uh, Stephen Cartman's drama triangle. Yeah. I mentioned it earlier on, but I'd like you to share a little bit about uh, how that plays out. I shared that with the correctional officers today. Um, you know, of all the things I've learned, I, I would say the one that lands most with people is Stephen Cartman's drama triangle. Such a brilliant distinction. He actually did win some awards from the uh, American, whatever the Transpersonal Psychology Association is. But it's really brilliant, and it's such an obvious human dynamic, it's surprising that somebody had to discover it, right? You know, the classic melodrama, you got the hero, the villain, and you got the damsel in distress or a villain. But he did name it, and, and what he described is, it's not really name, we're not calling people, he calls it persecutor, rescuer, and victim. These are not labels we're putting on people, right? We're not calling people persecutors, rescuers, and victims. These are mind states, personas, psychological positions that we all move through all the time. And I really want to normalize that. So what we mean by the victim mindset is anytime I'm even mildly unsatisfied, upset, frustrated, much less really upset or angry or something, and I attribute the causation of my feelings to someone or something outside myself. That's what we mean by the victim. Of course, we all do that all the time. And it seems compelling. Somebody does something, I'm irritated, right? The problem is when I really believe that my feelings, my internal state are caused by other people or other situations. I'm giving away all my power to those situations, those people, because I can't control the world. I can't control other people. So if I'm convinced that, you know, I'm angry about something and it's your fault because you've done whatever, then I don't get to not be angry until you change and I can't make you change. So I just put you in charge of my internal state. We all do that all the time. And of course, this isn't to say that people aren't, of course, people are victimized in terrible ways, right? We're not in any way being dismissive of that. We're talking more about the mindset here. But even when something terrible happens to someone, again, if they stay stuck in that mindset, it's going to be very self-limiting for their life at the very least. So we would hope that they can at some point find some creative way to get back in their life, right? But for most of us, I, I, it's easier to talk about the ordinary garden variety stuff we're doing all day long, right? Then there's the persecutor. That's when we're, you know, trying to control the situation by being critical and judgmental and, and getting into our dominance behaviors, right? So if I'm doing that, if I'm, if I'm really getting into my dominance thing, trying to control and, and criticize and judge, wh why would I do that? What am I looking for? What do you think I'm looking for there? Control. Control and power. Yeah, so that must mean that I feel in some way out of control or powerless, which is which position? Which is the victim position. The victim position. So we say the underlying position to the persecutor is the victim. And we know that all people who become chronic persecutors or abusers were themselves victimized as children, usually severely so. Fortunately, not all of us that go through bad childhood experience become chronic abusers or the world would be a much worse place. But you take any chronic abuser, I'll guarantee you, we know with beyond a shadow of a doubt psychologically there's childhood damage there that's the victim mind you know the the persecutor is is you know trying to move out of that sense of helplessness to regain power by being a persecutor mm -hmm. then we have the rescuer well the rescuer we need heroes and rescuers right and of course it's important to realize we're talking about adults here not about children of course children may need to be rescued and children need to be protected but between adults rescuing other adults unless they're caught in a mining accident or an avalanche or something, you know, it's not so helpful. You know, the psychological rescuer who ostensibly is helping people, but needs to do it from up here, right? Needs to be in the top position, the expert, the savior, the rescuer, right? 
And to the extent that my helping is caught up in that, none of us are pure rescuers, but none of us are pure helpers either, right? But to the extent that my helping behaviors are caught up in that rescuing psychology, I'm looking for victims. Do I want them to not be a victim? No, because then I'm out of a job. So my helping tends to be disempowering, often even demeaning, right? And I collude with victims, I enable victims, right? So that's the psychological rescuer. So if I need to be in that position of being the savior, being the fixer, the one that everybody comes to with their problems, right? And you know, I'm, I'm in control because I'm, I'm helping save people's lives. You know, what am I looking for? Again, I'm looking for control and power in order to feel good about myself. So underlying that is a sense of insecurity and helplessness and powerlessness, again, the victim position. So the whole drama triangle is about power and powerlessness and shadowy attempts to regain control and power that actually end up being destructive. And once the drama triangle forms, it spins and just creates toxic black holes of suffering. And you know, we need to have a sense of humor about it. It's a, it's a human condition, it's the heart of every great movie and novel. But you know, now reality TV is the most popular genre on TV. But I don't know how, much of us actually, how many of us actually wanna live in the middle of a reality TV show or the middle of an action thriller, you know, if that's how we really wanna live, live our lives, right? In, in reality, this, once this triangle forms, you know, when we, we feel persecuted, instead of dealing with that, we perceive it. It may not even be the truth. But instead of dealing with our perceptions or dealing with the situation, we go to someone else, we enlist a rescuer, the triangle starts spinning, roles shift, and you have this black hole of toxicity. And this destroys families, divorces, ruins children's lives, uh, undermines destroys companies and I've seen, I've seen businesses literally go out of business over this. Yeah. Uh, and on the global stage, it plays out as endless war and conflict. There's so much in this, in yeah. that model, we could have spent an hour. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but there's much more. And I love the, the six steps of doing that that you outline in your book. One of the things about that that's really interesting too, if you want to know what role you're in, look what you're blaming the other person exactly. for that role. You'll be able to tell what your role is right away. That's the great insight of Western psychology. Whenever we're irritated by something, that's a mirror. It's a mirror of our own stuff. Fleet Mall, it's just so great to be with you. I loved your book. I highly recommend it to our listeners. And there's so much more that we didn't get to. Let's, uh, let's follow up on it with the next book. And just thank you for your work and for your inspiration. And the depth that the book takes you to is just really powerful and healing for people. So thank you very much for all our listeners. Well, thank you, Michael. Really enjoyed your, our conversation today. Me too. Many blessings. Thank you. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.